coming to him as to a living stone which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God. You also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For this is contained in Scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone. He who believes in him will not be disappointed. This precious value then is for you who believe, but for those who disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the very corner. And a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, for they stumble because they are disobedient to the word, and to this doom they were also appointed. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, as I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts, which wage war against the soul, keep your behavior excellent among the nations, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. May God add his blessing to the reading of his precious word. And as I look at a room that the average age of adults has drastically uh, taken a turn to the um, more youthful, uh, I want to encourage you about something that I just read out of 1 Peter 2. This church is a founding church and a little ministry that is um, invitational across the whole country called Camp Arete. And I just read a word where we get the name for this camp, Camp Arete, the excellences of, excellencies of him. That's the word aratos, and it is partly where we get this adjective, arete. And it means anything of excellence, anything of moral virtue or superiority, something of excellence. And that's what we've named this camp. It was first conducted in the Colorado Rockies, uh, just outside the Rocky Mountain National Forest in uh, Grand Lake. And now uh, we have moved it to the Smoky Mountains in Tennessee because it is uh, for several reasons. But um, <clears throat> we want to encourage you to consider ministry with this one of our church's missions that we support regularly. Um, if you wanted to get involved with Camparete, uh, this would be a good year to do it. Uh, I will be one of the teaching pastors there. I usually am. I have been there every year except for last year because of my sabbatical. Um, pastor Clay Ward of Play Roman Bible Church down in Tullahoma, Tennessee will um, be our keynote speaker. And uh, Pastor uh, Brad Maston of Fort Collins Bible Church in Fort Collins, Colorado will also be uh, one of the uh, teaching pastors there. And um, the goal of Camparete really is to help young people have a serious appetite for the Word of God that, like we read, like newborn babies, we are commanded to long, to want, to desire the pure milk of the Word of God. And it, it is, as everyone in this room knows, an acquired taste to have Bible teaching where there's actual depth and substance and it's not just an emotional roller coaster, but it's really something of significance and substance. This is not an ear tickling exercise. And uh, we do our best to bring it to the level of our young people that come to camp. But the actual goal of camp is that they come home from camp 
more mature, more energized, more interested in serious engagement with the Word of God for serious growth, for serious discipleship. And um, so it's a lot of fun, but the focus of this ministry is the teaching of God's Word. And the way you would involve yourself with Camparete is you would go to the website, camparete.com. That's A-R-E-T-E, spelled right here, A-R-E-T-E, camparete.com. And then you would check out, get involved. If you're a camper, that's ages 13 to 18, and we have like a mulligan for for some people that we'll let them come back at 19, but it's generally 13 to 18. And then um, for getting involved with camp, um, you would click on get involved. And um, down on that drop down, you could see there's a place that um, talks about uh, how to work with it, how to, um, what our servant leader program looks like. And if you click on work with Camparete, this is what happens. I'll, I will receive uh, a text message pretty quickly you would um, go to this little web, little drop-down dialogue and fill out this little form and say, hey, I want to get involved. And um, fill out the, and they would say, hey, Rosalind, people in your church or up in your neck of the woods are interested in, in helping out with camp this year. And that's, that's how you do it. That's how you get involved with Camp Arete. I plan on driving down uh, this summer, and it is the week of the, I want to, what's that? Where does it say that? Right in front of me. Oh, right up there. Okay, 14th through 20 July. There you go. Um, if you saw what I'm seeing, you would know why I can't see what it says. It's, it's, it's like reading a GPS from 1997. Anyway, uh, anyway. <laughs> um, that's pretty esoteric right there. Okay, so anyway, I want to introduce Camp Rete and let you know how to get involved if you're interested in and joining us out there for some uh, serious time in the Word. The theme for teaching for the, it's always like a Bible conference with three pastors that are bringing it down to the high school kids level. So it's awesome. It's a lot of fun. The thing this year is redeemed to serve. And so we're emphasizing the fact that if you are a believer in Christ, it's not so you'll go to heaven. That's not why you're saved. You're saved to serve in the mission. Guess what I'm teaching on? The mission. I'm doing the on mission stuff uh, and highlights of on mission. And, um, Clay Ward's going to talk through um, several aspects of the Christian life, um, rede- dealing with our redemption and our service and um, emphasizing identification in Romans 6, uh, identification with Christ and service. And then uh, Brad's going to talk about spiritual gifts and emphasize the equipping that God's given us to serve. So uh, we're really excited. We're pulling this together as we speak and uh, definitely want to encourage you to, to get in prayer and otherwise uh, minister with us at camp. That is the week before the week before VBS. Yeah. There will be a recovery week and then a, and then a, a, yeah. Yes, the summertime is a beating. It's almost like Christmas, but it's a little spread out. But it's uh, Christmas and summer are uh, the most <laughs> hectic times of my life. All right, we're in 1 Peter chapter 2. I want to take a moment for silent prayer, make sure we're walking in fellowship with God. If we break fellowship through personal sin, you're right to feel bad about that. You really are, but that's not what the Bible says that you do about it. Um, Your conscience is bothering you because there's a break in fellowship with God, and you need to have that fellowship restored. And we're told in the context of teaching about enjoying the things of God with Him in 1 John chapter 1 that if we confess our sins... He, God, is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 
And some will say that this is a, a message to tell unbelievers that they need to be saved by confessing their sins. But I wonder why the Apostle John is saying we, if we confess our sins, if we say we have no sin. Um, I believe the answer is because this is what Christians, the believer priest needs to do in order to be cleansed and therefore rendered fit for service. It's the same thing you see in the commissioning for Isaiah. Isaiah is told, Isaiah sees God in Isaiah chapter 6, and he, he says, oh no, woe is me, I'm ruined, I've seen the Holy One. I'm a man of unclean lips. Immediately sees righteous God and sees his, his contrast and is, is devastated. And he confesses his sin on the spot. I am a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips. I'm dirty. I'm just dripping with the filth of my sin, the presence of righteous and holy God. I'm undone. And the angel, the seraph, the burning one, grabs something burning from the incense altar in the throne room of heaven. He grabs a piece of incense, uh, coals, and he, with tongs from this incense altar, just like the tabernacle, and he brings it and touches Isaiah's lips and it doesn't say how bad Isaiah felt about that. It just says that the, the seraph then says, the angel says, this has cleansed your lips, this has touched your lips, and you've been cleansed. So he confesses his sin, and then he's cleansed. That's a pattern throughout Scripture. And what happens then, it, very interestingly, this is the commissioning of Isaiah. God then says in his throne room, who will go and speak for us? And Isaiah says, I'm available. I'm just recently cleansed. I can serve. And he doesn't deserve ministry, but God has rendered him capable and fit for service. He's cleansed him. So let's take a moment for silent prayer, believer priests, and make sure that we're prepared to study God's word and approach his throne of grace clean. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we want to praise you because unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless you guard the city, we wait, we wait and we watch all night in vain. Father, it's vain for us to uh, go forth in life without the power that you've supplied for us through your Holy Spirit and what he's done, what he does in us through your word as we're saturated with it. Father, we want to be, as we read in Psalm chapter one, the first Psalm, that we want to be that tree that's firmly planted by streams of living water because we meditate in your word day and night. Let this time be a time of meditation on what it means to be in this royal priesthood offering appropriate sacrifices to you as we are taught by the Apostle Peter and the writer of Hebrews. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So we are talking tonight about this summary of the believer's priesthood in terms of the sacrifices in, again, 1 Peter chapter 2. If you want to turn there, 1 Peter 2. Last time we looked at this, on Sunday morning, we were talking about the, the specific sacrifices that are mentioned, and we were in Hebrews chapter uh, 10. Hebrews 10 is sort of parallel to 1 Peter 2 on this concept of priesthood for the church-age believer. And that's, pre, that's most of what the Bible teaches about it. Most of what the Bible teaches on the believer's priesthood is, um, is Hebrews 10, Hebrews 13, 1 Peter 2. 
it, and I want to reiterate, this is not a major doctrine in the New Testament. It's a major reaction of the reformers to the Roman Catholic system, but it's not a major teaching in the New Testament. And when we get to, um, when we look at the details of 1 Peter 2, he's quoting lots of Exodus, lots of what God said to Israel and applying it to the church. Um, but it is only an application. It is not a substitution. All right. In, um, in 1 Peter 2, just let's get a running start on what, we, what we're looking at. Um, by way of review, in, in 2.4, Peter says we're coming to the Lord Jesus, a living stone, by men on the one hand rejected, by the, but on the other hand to God chosen and precious, the way God thinks of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so because we're coming to Jesus as a living stone, you yourselves as living stones are being built, a spiritual house into a holy priesthood in order to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. That's, that's the establishment of this concept in, in Peter's writing of the Christian priesthood. Now, we have more information about the way there is a new priesthood in Hebrews uh, because of the new uh, priesthood of Christ and the order of Melchizedek, and it's a royal priesthood. We say royal because he is, on the one hand, the king of Salem, and on the other hand, the priest of Salem, the king and the priest. And that doesn't make sense in the Mosaic system because the Judah tribe would give us the kings, and the tribe of Levi would give us the priests. And so that system is not being discussed here at all. What we're talking about is a new order, and it is the order of Melchizedek, again, uh, in Hebrews 7 and, and following. So now we're, we're looking at this where Peter talks about us as priests, and he says the whole point is because you're coming to Christ as a living stone, you yourselves as living stones are being built into a holy priesthood. That's the idea. You, this house, this holy temple of God, are being built into a royal priesthood, a holy priesthood. And the reason why, and that's what I really want to emphasize tonight, the reason why there is a priesthood in the Old Testament and in this instance is because there are sacrifices that need to be offered. The point of the priesthood in the Scriptures is, first of all, it exists because of Jesus, our high priest, and second, because there are sacrifices that are pleasing to God. Now, we all know that the Old Testament system, the Levitical system, is fulfilled by the one offering of Jesus Christ once and for all, the sufficient sacrifice who actually takes away the sins of the world. The atonement, the Day of Atonement sacrifices, all the sin offerings, all the offerings of Israel were types were pictures of the real sacrifice for sin the last adam would pay for the sins of the first adam and then all the humans and all the sins thereafter and jesus is the fulfillment of those types those sacrifices but in the levitical system in the code for israel it wasn't only sacrifices for sins the sacrificial system is better described as, now listen to this. This is how God set up the priesthood for Israel, and there's an analogy for us. Listen to what happened. God had redeemed these people at the Passover. They put blood on the doorpost. God came through and took the firstborn of all of Egypt. But where he saw blood on the doorpost, he passed over. And that sacrifice of that Passover lamb, 
That's the beginning. That's the redemption moment for the nation of Israel. And then God led them out of Egypt. He, he broke them by breaking Egypt, bringing it to its knees. He broke them out of Egypt with that redemption work at Passover. And then he freed them from any further bondage to Pharaoh at the Red Sea, at the great Red Sea crossing, when God strategically positioned Israel in a perfect spot to look like bait, to look like a helpless lamb for the slaughter, for, for Pharaoh to repent again, to change his mind again and come back and attack Israel. And I hope you know the story. It's, one, it's the great action story of the Bible. And we read about this part in Exodus 14. And God positioned them perfectly in the first three verses of Exodus 14 to be uh, destroyed by Pharaoh uh, with their backs to an impossible barrier, the Sea of Reeds, Yom Suf, the Sea of Reeds. And then the people said, oh no, He's doing it. He's killing us. He brought us out here to kill us. And God says, stop it. Moses, stand up on the, st- on the rock over there. St- spread your hand across the water. And then God, God parted the sea, sent a wind. There's no natural phenomenon here. It's a supernatural work of God where he parted the Red Sea and they go across on dry land. Meanwhile, well, how is Pharaoh not able to get to them? Well, God also positioned himself as a hedge, a wall of fire between Pharaoh, his army, and the Israelites while they're crossing. It's an amazing work. How anyone ever experienced this event and then, never, then, and then had any failure to trust in God and his promises from then on is hard to imagine. But that's what, that's what happened. God God redeemed them in the Passover, and then he, he freed them. He, he finally broke them from any bondage to Pharaoh at the Red Sea, and now they're his. They're his possession. He leads them down to, the, um, to Mount Horeb, down in the Sinai Peninsula, and they receive the law, and, uh, and that's the story of the Exodus. Now, the priesthood is established in Exodus and Leviticus. The priesthood for Israel is established for Aaron and his sons. The whole tribe of Levi will conduct all priestly work, but inside that work, there will be a smaller group called the sons of Kohath, and then a smaller group will be the sons of Aaron, and Aaron priests, the Levitical priests in the order of Aaron, are going to conduct the sacrifices and the ministration for the people of Israel. And here's what this is. A redeemed people from Passover and the Red Sea crossing are now sinful and yet redeemed. And they need to enjoy fellowship with God despite their sinfulness. They need to come near to the presence of God and they need to enjoy the things of God together. And so there's sin offerings, there's peace offerings, there's fellowship offerings. There are many types of offering that are this experience of the things of God together with Him. And one of them, the, you would, it would be a, a, a barbecue, and part of it would go to God and be burnt up, and part of it would be enjoyed by the priests and the person offering it because we're having a meal of fellowship with God. That's what's going on in part of the offerings. And so the entire Levitical system of sacrifices is how can these redeemed people, despite their sinfulness, despite the continuation of their brokenness and how they fall short of God's wonderful law that he's commanded them, how can they continue to have fellowship with a holy and righteous God? And see, you're not supposed to approach God in an unrighteous way. You're not supposed to come in his presence unclean, right? And, and so you're supposed to do something about this. And that's what the priests were kind of mediators, functionaries in their Levitical offerings to help the Israelites 
on an individual basis, on a household basis, enjoy fellowship with God. That's what the Levitical system was. That's what the priests are there to do. And it, it does involve dealing with sin. It also involves enjoying, for example, uh, the grain offering. You, you th- you're thanking him with the grain offering. It's a sacrifice. You're giving what uh, the first part of your grain crop and, you're, and you've done special work to it. You've, you've ground it fine into fine flour and you make cakes with it and you give those to God and you're saying thank you to God for the provision that he's given you it's yours after all and I'm giving it to you and acknowledging you as the source and that's fellowship with God see there's all kinds of offerings in the Levitical system you can read about it in Leviticus chapters 1 through 7 so what you find is um, the function of the priests is primarily about the sacrifices When you read about priests in the New Testament, the Christian priesthood, it's not about privacy. It's not about the individual, I'm on my own representing myself to God. It's not about representation even. The Bible doesn't teach in the New Testament the concept of representation as the main issue, at least not the way we might have heard it. The representation is we represent God to the world, as we'll see in just a moment. But the point of priesthood is sacrifices. I just want to really emphasize that. And so Paul and Peter and the writer of Hebrews all portray Christian service as priestly sacrifice. The work that you and I do for God's sake is seen as a priestly sacrifice. Paul says at in the end of uh, 2 Timothy, I am now being poured out as a drink offering. That's one of the offerings in Israel, fellowship with God. He's saying, I am being sacrificed. It's a way of thinking in an Israelite sense of ministry to God when you're having fellowship with him. So here, when we go to 1 Peter chapter 2, with that context of priesthood in Israel, and, and what are these Jewish Christians thinking when they hear that there's a priesthood? They're thinking, what are the sacrifices? In order to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. That's why there's a believer priesthood for the spiritual sacrifices that we have to offer. And see, it would be great for me if the Bible stopped right here and I could just fill in with what I think your sacrifices need to be. Right? Wouldn't that be nice? What are you giving up, my brothers and sisters? Are you really feeling the sacrifice of praise that you're, offer, you're supposed to offer to God? Or is it just something that is vestigial? It's not even really part of your life and you're just giving him the extras. And I could go into a whole discourse and discussion about what I think your sacrifices should be to God. And I would probably make it on TV if I did that. I would probably make a lot of money on TV if I did that. I would have to clean up a little bit of my storytelling i'm sure and get a little more compelling in how i talk and stuff but but see that's not what the bible is going to end up teaching it's spiritual sacrifices acceptable god through jesus christ and i want to um, show you some more about that in this passage so let's see the paraphrase that i gave you last week because you're coming to jesus a living stone on the one hand rejected by men but on the other hand chosen and precious in god's evaluation remember the worldview thing god's opinion is the only one that matters and everyone else hates god and rejects christ right there in first peter 2 4 so on the one hand rejected by men on the other hand chosen and precious in god's evaluation this is how the world is about jesus This is how the world is about Jesus. I mean, 
five and a half billion people can't be wrong. No, they are. That's that they are wrong, and that's First Peter two four. But you yourselves, as living stones, a spiritual house, are being built into a holy priesthood. We spent a lot of time on the grammar last week, showing that that's how Peter is saying his sentence. You are being built into a priesthood so that you will offer up spiritual sacrifices. The reason for the construction project is the sacrifices. Who wants to waste their lives? Who wants to have their life not count? Who wants to say, well, uh, it was neat that I was capitalized and equipped and given all that I was given to be what God wanted me me to be in his economy, but I was busy satisfying myself. Who wants to say that when they meet the Lord Jesus Christ at the judgment seat of Christ? See, that's, the, that's the, the hard thing about being a believer in Jesus Christ. The believer priesthood isn't something that you chose. It's something that you find yourself accountable to. It's something you're responsible for. And you don't really get a choice about that responsibility. Well, I don't really want to walk by the Spirit. So, well, the thing is, it's a command of Scripture, I, didn't, I don't want to get, in, I mean, I'm not trying to be all crazy about this and everything. Radical Preston City Bible Church people I think it's all about saturation with the Bible and the pastor teaches for an hour, sometimes an hour and two minutes. And it, it's just, it's just, we really can't, it can't be that hard. It can't be like we have to sit and listen and study to know the things of God so that we're characterized by them in the power of God, the Holy Spirit in how we live our lives. But it, it kind of is that. But can't we do it with personality? Can't we just all adopt a certain sort of Christian-y personality and that'll do it? Can't we all just kind of have the same sort of Stepford Wives uh, smile on our face and just all kind of be, you know, it's all good brother and sister and joy and happy. And Isn't that how it's supposed to be? Won't there be a uniform cookie-cutter personality result if we really have the Holy Spirit? So can't we just do it by personality and cultural Christianity and uh, dispense with all this study of grammar? Grammar? Please, I, I, don't, I didn't come to church to learn something, right? It's not Sunday school. This is, this is supposed to be Bible study. But I mean, we don't really want to study. <laughs> um, can't we do it in some other way? And here's what I end up with. Uh, people have said, Pastor Dave, your church is like a seminary teaching people lectures and uh and you have to it's like a college class and you have to have vocabulary words and have to write them down and look them up later and then think about what you said and and um and all that and i don't mean for it to be that way um you just you just it's not fun well i think it is very fun and that's again acquired taste but here's my problem with it i'm actually reading the bible and then when i do that i find oh there's something going on here and i just kind of dig a little more and i say well what's this about why does he use a genitive here and then a dative here? And why is this pronoun in the neuter? As we'll see in this passage, I won't show you in the passage, but in the passage it happens. Why is it a neuter pronoun when there's no neuter referent? And that's just there, and it's like transparent to us when we read in our English. But um, I'll do it in English too. I'll read an English verse and I'll say, what, what exactly, certainly does he mean by that? And you know what happens when I ask that question? Do you know what happens? I get all confused. What does he mean by that? And then what do I have to do? Well, I have to work until I'm not confused anymore. You know what usually happens? I usually make it. Sometimes I feel like I'm on a trapeze. 
You know that guy on the trapeze? He's got to have enough push from this side to go all the way across to make it to the other side. And if he doesn't have enough momentum to get to the other side, then he kind of ends up here and he doesn't, uh uh-oh, we don't know what we're doing. (laughs) But what's beautiful about God's design of language and his instruction in the scriptures is it's there. The answers are there and we have to trust him that he means what he says. We don't fudge it. We don't make it mean something that he doesn't say. And let me give you an example of what I'm saying. The point of the believer priesthood in the Apostle Peter's writing in 1 Peter 2.5 is that there are sacrifices for us to conduct. Look what he says. In order so that you will offer spiritual sacrifices. This is his point. The so that. And so now we're supposed to think about Christian ministry. And I'll show you. He's going he's to further elaborate on what that looks like. This is supposed to be considered a sacrifice. When you brought, think about Israel, when they brought the red heifer offering, that meant some rancher, somebody had to raise a red heifer. That's some of their property uh, slash bank account. And they brought it to God and didn't get any of it. When they brought a whole burnt offering, a bull or a ram or something, that animal that's part of their livelihood is gone and it's all of God's. And that's the idea of a sacrifice. Remember, the sacrifices don't just mean, well, we've got to have blood so that God's appeased. That's not all there is there. There's also a, hey, that was my animal, and now it's God's animal. And there was a sacrifice involved. And so, believer priests, when you bring uh, the sacrifices that God wants you to offer, there will be a hit. If we just leave it on the word spiritual... Can you think with me for a minute? If we just leave it on spiritual sacrifices, it isn't lambs, it isn't money, it isn't bulls, it's spiritual. I guarantee you that part of what that means is time. Time in your life. I guarantee you it means some attention that I could do this with my time, but no, that would be something less than an actual service to God that I've been given this opportunity to serve him with. When I was a kid, there was popular talk about goal setting. Probably been true for everybody, for all kids of all time. Set your goals and, you know, live, you know. I remember being told good advice that if you live um, a certain way when you're in school and do all the work that you're going to do that you need to to build up your career, then in your 40s you can play. Don't play in your 20s. See, young people trying to integrate, trying to work it in there with the young people. Um, no, God's doing that. When you're in your 20s, you know, it's time to work. It's time to learn. It's time to build your, build your, your skill set. It's not time to do the stupid things that your generation's doing. Um, all of our generations have done and will do. It's time to buckle down and to be different from the, the herd by actually doing what you're supposed to be doing. Everybody here, all these young people, you know that. It's not time to play. It's time to work because when you're 40, then you can play. Now, here's what I didn't understand when I was young thinking I'm going to work hard in my 20s because when I'm 40, I want to play. Then I'll be playing with little kids that were mine. Um, no one thinks about that in the American culture, that that's really the, 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 what you're working toward is to be able to provide, protect, train, equip, and raise the next generation of godly seed to offer their spiritual sacrifices. So I did. You know, I did. I, I worked hard, and then now I'm playing. Um, 
and teaching Greek to little kids and some and pray for me on that because we need to teach them English too. But, um, and you're like, and pastor, don't, don't leave out self-control. We're working on that too. Um, uh, <clears throat> but you're going to have to take a hit in terms of the sacrifice if you're going to do what God wants you to do. In other words, you're going to have to have some Christian humility and say, not my will, but your will be done. Not this thing I could do with my life, but what you want me to do with my life. And some of you are there most of the time. You're there. You're like, nope, I don't, I've already done the math. God has all the wealth. God has all the blessing. God has all the happiness. He has all the bliss. All the things that I could go for in life, he's already got. So I'm going to trust him and be about his business and just trust him with how he distributes. Some of you have already figured that out. And others are like, I just want to enjoy my life. I just want to have a happy life. And, and I, I'm not really so sure that submitting everything to God is kind of the way to get that. But you haven't paid attention enough to the scriptures yet to see that that's exactly how it works. It's all in him. He's got all the, bless, all the bliss, all the blessing. See, God knows better than you what you need or even what you would enjoy. God knows better than you and me uh, what would be best for us. Even if, if we could see it like he sees it, we'd say, yeah, that one, not that one. Go through God's door number three, not my door number one. Because my door number one seemed like the best, but God's best is better than I could ever have imagined. Because we haven't yet understood who God is in some of our cases, and we're all growing in that. But what I'm saying is, if you're going to actually engage spiritually the way you're being encouraged by 1 Peter chapter 2, then it's going to be a sacrifice. And on the front end, it's going to seem like you're losing out. I have to give up this time. How many times in my life did I say Bible instead of diversion, TV, fun, whatever? How many times in my life at this point, how many times in, in you seasoned young at heart saints have you had to say there was a fun thing I could do, but I said, no, I'm going to be about the word first. And if there's any time left over, maybe I'll go play because it's fine to play. But the first thing's first. And not every time in my life have I made that decision. It hasn't always gone well. But for the most part, by God's grace and the, the, the tutelage of my Christian parents, for the most part, I learned this, that the real joy is in God's word. And if I don't feel it, that that's where it is, that's a problem for me. And I need to just trust the Lord on that. And then he, he does bring it about. It's called growing up. So the reason that you're being built into this priesthood is so that you will offer spiritual sacrifices. And um, you pretty much need to see that as awesome, as a privilege, when Zacharias was chosen by Lot, that it was his turn to go and offer incense in the temple, John the Baptist's father. Remember when he met the angel, met Gabriel, and was struck dumb? I'm sorry, he was dumbstruck when, when he met the, the angel. Um, it was a big deal. It was like his one shot. It was his one privilege to go into the, the holy place and, and minister this way. It's a huge privilege to think about being a royal priest but it carries this great responsibility and it ends up being a sacrifice. I'm trying to dramatize for you in several different directions how to think about this life because it turns out that the believer priesthood is a summary for the Christian life. It's, a, it's kind of a metaphor. I don't wanna, I think, it, I think that's sufficient. It's kind of a metaphor for your Christian walk and what you do for him. The key about our sacrifices is that we want them to be acceptable to God. And you know the story of Cain and Abel, as we've said. And the way 
to make that certain is that they're offered through the Lord Jesus Christ and the power of his Holy Spirit. Now, in verse 6, moving forward, it says in my translation, for this stands in Scripture, Isaiah 28, 16 says, Behold, I set in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone. This is a reference to Jesus Christ. And he who believes on him will by no possible means be put to shame. Now, my Bible doesn't say by no possible means. It says he who believes in him will not be disappointed. But here's what's fun about looking at how it's stated in the way Peter wrote it. He says, ooh, O-U, and then this is M-E, may, ooh, may. And then it's an aorist passive subjunctive. When you negate possibility with the strongest possible negation, and that's what the Greek structure does there, it's the double negation, it's the double underlining, negating possibility. This is the strongest way to say it can't happen in very elegant Greek grammar. It's the same thing in Galatians 5.16. If you walk by the Spirit, you will absolutely not be able to fulfill the lust of the flesh. Ume plus the subjunctive. It's a construction, and that's what is happening here. And so I've translated it, by no possible means you will be put to shame. Now, do you take that as a promise from God, that if you believe on Christ, then this will be sufficient honor and exaltation for you, so that there will be no shame ultimately and eternally for you? Is this part of your package of understanding what happened when you first believed in Christ? as you continue to trust in Christ. There is plenty of shame, okay, to, to worship a man who was humiliated so much by the Roman Empire. A Jew who was mocked by Romans, who bowed down to him with a crown of thorns jammed into his scalp. As blood trickled down his, his face and, and his head, they're, they're, they're hailing the king of the Jews with his garment. And they nailed him to this cross and hung him between heaven and earth, Paul says, placarded, publicly portrayed as crucified, one who is God in the flesh. It's a great shame for us in the world's accounting that we worship him. One historian says that the earliest image in church history of the cross is a piece of graffiti we found by Romans, that has a man on a cross with a donkey's head and the name Christ saying the idiot Christians are worshiping an ass. The first image we have historically that we're sure of, that that we think is is a reference to the cross. There is great shame in one way of thinking about Christianity. But the Word of God says there's absolutely no way you will be put to shame. Because again, we're playing for an audience of one, as we say, right? There's only one person before whom we, we better not be ashamed. And I should say there's only three persons, one God who exists as three persons. If we're working to please him, if we're serving him and we care about what he thinks, there have got, to, to, to live like that, there have got to be a couple of things in place, don't there? For me not to be ashamed in front of God and think this way, there are a couple of things that have to be true. I have to first of all believe he's there. Ever find yourself in the moment thinking you're on your own? Ever have that moment of truth, three o'clock in the afternoon? I've been acting like this is just about me. Does that not happen on occasion for you? That you're, first of all, you have to think in terms that God is there and believe in him 
and trust him and be talking to him. Pray without ceasing. How do we get there? How can that be true for you and me? I know of no other way than 1 Peter 2, 3. To long for the pure milk of the word like a newborn baby longs for his mother's milk. Like every couple minutes, every couple of hours, that baby's got to eat. And that's called saturation. This is what I'm talking about. This is, this, this is Christian spirituality. But if you believe on Christ, the choice, the, the, the choice stone, a precious cornerstone, then, then there's no way you'll be put to shame in God's accounting. And that's something to keep in mind, and I take it as a promise. Isaiah 28, 16. Therefore, to you, the honor or the value to those who believe. To you who believe is the way it's generally rendered the honor or the value. You get the value who have the eyes of faith. But to those who are not persuaded, patho, apatho, not persuaded or who dis- disobey. One translation says who do not believe. Um, not one translation, one manuscript tradition says who do not believe. Well, there's Psalm 118.22. Those who are not believers or are not persuaded, a stone whom the builders rejected, this one has become the chief cornerstone. See, the builders are... Israel, and they receive the, the, the cornerstone which determines the way the rest of the project goes. There's an authority established by the cornerstone. It's the standard by which everything else is arranged. Well, we've already got our system and he doesn't fit, so we reject him. No, your system's bogus. Start with the cornerstone. That's the point of the cornerstone. So there is, there's an inherent authority in Christ that the builders need to work off of And when they say, "Ah, he doesn't fit, that means that that's a judgment on them. And that's the world. That's really not just Israel uh, in, in its rejection of Christ. That's the world you and I live in. Jesus doesn't fit. Jesus, the sovereign, Jesus, the ruler, Jesus, the Jewish Messiah, who is coming to bring his kingdom that is not here yet, but is inevitably coming. Jesus, who told the disciples to pray for the father to bring the kingdom. Okay, he doesn't fit the narrative. I mean, after all, it is 2019. How long is he going to wait? I mean, you all Christians say he's coming. Where is he at? He hasn't seen him yet. Everything kind of goes as it has been. That's the message preached against Peter in 2 Peter 3. But the world rejects him, and this one has become the chief cornerstone. So again, it's, it's echoing the thought in verse 4. And in Isaiah 8, 14, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Well, that's even worse. Not only did he not fit our, our scheme, so we reject him and therefore find ourselves going to the lake of fire. <laughs> we, we have tripped over him. He's right there in the path and you stumble over him and break your foot and it hurts. They stumble because they're disobedient to the word unto which they were also appointed. The word which is a neuter pronoun that has to refer back to the entire previous clause, if you're interested. Unto which, stumbling because they're disobedient to the word, they were appointed. There it is. God determines arbitrarily who gets appointed, who doesn't. That doesn't say that. It doesn't say why they are appointed. It doesn't answer the, the quibble between the, the, the competing systems. It just says that God's got this in hand. And I believe it. I, pr- I pray that you do too. We do serve a sovereign creator. 
And that does not contradict the fact that he holds you responsible to trust him. They stumble because they're disobedient to the word unto which they were also appointed. And verse 9, the summary ministry of the priesthood. But you are a chosen people. That's genos, translated in my Bible, race. Trying to avoid that word <laughs> lately, even though historically that's a, sol- that's a sound word. But race has become such a stupid thing that we need to just emphasize the human race. Genesis 9, everybody got off the same boat. We all came from Adam, and then we all came from Noah and his wife. No, 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 we didn't just come from Noah. We came from Noah's three sons. Oh, but they came from Noah and his wife um, and the parents of the three wives of Noah's three sons. And so we all came out of this family. um, And so I've translated a people or an ethnicity. (laughs) But genos can mean race. It can also mean class or type. A royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for possession. Doesn't say whose possession, but the implication is for God's possession. And then another so that. Now, why have we been marked out this way? Why are we a royal priesthood? Same thing from verse 5. So that the excellent features of character you may proclaim of the one who called you from darkness into his marvelous light. The parallel of verse 5 and the sacrifices that are satisfying to God is the proclamation of his character to a lost world in verse 9. Now, this is what I want to emphasize. The royal priest or the Levitical priest had an incredible privilege. You remember the story? Have you read the Pentateuch? Have you read it lately? It's so good. And I've been teaching it for a seminary course, and it's so wonderful. But One of the things, when God is laying out the inheritance plan for the 12 tribes of Israel, he says, Levi, you don't have an inheritance, meaning you don't get any any cut of the promised land. There will be cities of refuge where the priests will live and preach to the the manslayer, but but, um, you don't really get a chunk of land like the other tribes. Do you know what God says instead? It's, oh, not fair. I mean, I, I wanted a piece of land. You know what God says they get for inheritance instead of the land? He says, for I shall be your inheritance. Remember this? You're like, oh, that gives me tingles. That's way better. The Levites are better off than the rest of the people. Because why? Because they're closer to Yahweh. In the sense that he himself is their inheritance, they don't get any land. I'll trade, yes, I don't want land, I want God. Right? Give me Jesus. That's, That's the idea. I am your inheritance. The privilege of the priests is something to consider when you're told that priesthood carries the responsibility for sacrifice. It's a privilege. Rank has its privilege, but it also has its responsibility. And here's your privilege, and here's your calling. You are a people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's possession, so that you may proclaim his excellent character, the features of his excellent character who who, whose character the one who called you from darkness into his marvelous light now if you're like isaiah you look at yourself and you take a long look and uh, you see your sinfulness in comparison to god's presentation of his righteousness who am i to say anything about god i feel this way 
I who multiply words feel this way. I, I'm not, I have no right to speak for God. I have no right to, to say a word to glorify Him because I'm broken. Because like Isaiah, I can say I'm a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips. I've got a sinful nature and sometimes I give in to it. So do you. And the privilege of speaking His excellencies, His excellent character, to proclaim who He is, this is the awesome privilege and calling of the believer priesthood. This is the summary sacrifice that he is, with which he's pleased. Maybe you don't feel it. I can't make you. Maybe you don't feel that sense of privilege and awe at, the, at just the fact that your brokenness, from your broken person, the Holy Spirit is able to equip you, clean you up and equip you to speak for God. Some of us, the first thing we need to say when we say anything to anyone about God is, let me start by saying, I don't deserve to speak for him. I don't deserve to talk about God, but he in his grace has given me the privilege. I get to draw breath and then use my vocal cords to say God is perfectly righteous. God loves me with a greater, purer, higher, fervent love than I can even have the sense to experience or appreciate. God wanted me and he wanted to save me despite my brokenness so much that he incarnated. And we have a Trinitarian statement of God's love. And John 3, God the Father so loved the world, He gave His only Son. In Galatians 2, Jesus loved me and gave Himself for me. And by the Holy Spirit, the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts. And I contend it's the love that God has that He equips us to express. And that's why hope doesn't disappoint. What a privilege to proclaim the excellent features of God's character. Now, my clumsy English is the Greek order of the sentence. And I do want to show you that there's a reason why I think it's significant. The first thing he says in the so that clause is the excellent features of character. The aratos, the excellencies. That's the first thing he says. It's the, it's the first part. And, it, and by that, it's emphatic. What do you know about God's character? Well, uh, he's good all the time. What do we know about God's character? By this statement, I think every one of us, God throws the gauntlet down and says, are you going to be a theologian or are you not? Are you going to know me? Are you going to know what I'm like or are you not? Are you going to pay attention to the word and distill from it who I am and so you can proclaim the excellencies of my character or will you not? And that's why, again, back to the Word, the Word challenges us to watch closely and draw near to the one whose character we are learning. I've often been challenged. I've often been challenged in ministry by those that don't like teaching that what we're doing here is to become smart or puffed up. You're just trying to be smart. You're just trying to, to know but knowledge puffs up. 
And my response to that statement to the person who inevitably, invariably loves the Lord, but doesn't want to be taught by his word. And I don't mean by me, I'm not talking about somebody that I'm trying to hold down and teach them. I just mean they don't want to, they don't want to be involved in Bible teaching. The person that, that says that inevitably loves the Lord, but won't listen to the teaching of his word does not understand that this is how you come to know him. And that's really the knowledge that we're seeking him. Knowing in the Bible is intimacy. Knowing the person of God, knowing who he is and what he's like is intimacy. And so to be able to proclaim his excellent character, I have to know it. So this is why the believer priesthood is a great metaphoric summary for the Christian way of life. What you do in proclaiming who he is by being who you are in your community, being who God is making you to be so that you have the right words to say in the right moment. And you're there to proclaim his excellencies. It's an incredible privilege, but it's kind of daunting, isn't it? It's almost like a sacrifice. I'm going to sacrifice social standing. I'm going to sacrifice friendships because I'll be who I am. And when they really see who I am in Christ, they're going to say, ugh, religious fanatic. Now they'll say that at first. Don't worry. God's got work. He's there a work in progress. 20 years later, you're going for that 20 years later thing where you haven't heard from the person. They come back and say that you, what you said 20 years ago has been bugging me. And last year, I finally, somebody came and told me about Christ and I immediately thought of what you had said and, I, and, it, and it clicked. And you get to have, by God's grace, a, a share because you proclaimed his excellencies. You get to be a sharer in that work that brought that person to Christ. You sacrifice the friendship, if you will, because not because you rejected them, but you were rejected. And it hurts. It tests your faith. I really, want, I really like that person. I really, our personalities went well together. And I took a hit and I lost social standing. It ends up being a sacrifice. There are lots of ways that the sacrifice works. Would you turn with me, please, as we close to Hebrews 13? The exhortation of the writer of Hebrews, I love, Hebrew, the writer of Hebrews always says, let us. Come on, everybody, let us, let's all do this together. He's not out there saying, you do this, and there, there's a time for that, but but he, he, the way his style, he's always saying in his greatest commands, let us, let us draw near. Here in Hebrews thirteen fifteen, through Jesus then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that give thanks to his name. If you don't see that as a direct parallel to 1 Peter 2, 9, there's only one reason. It's because you weren't paying attention <laughs> And that happens sometimes. See, the, the first Peter 2, 9, we're a priesthood so that we can proclaim his excellencies, the one who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Here, Hebrews 13, 15, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that give thanks to his name. It turns out that what I say about God is something he's after. What, God, what am I here for? 
You're here to proclaim His excellencies. You're here to offer up the sacrifice of praise to Him and give thanks. There it is. Christian priesthood is only about praising God and for the benefit of others to hear, certainly. It's just spiritual praise to God, right? Keep reading verse 16. Hebrews 13, 16. Do not neglect doing good and sharing, for with such sacrifices God is pleased. The central doctrine of the Christian priesthood is that Jesus Christ is our high priest who has brought us near to God. And the follow-on result of being ushered into this priesthood is that we have sacrifices to offer. The summary statement of the sacrifices is these are the things that please God. To a world that is lost and in need of Him, it is the proclamation of who He is. To those with whom God has associated us, it is sharing and doing good with such sacrifices. God is pleased. I never read Hebrews thirteen sixteen without reading verse 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy, not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. Pray for us, for we are sure that we have a good conscience desiring to conduct ourselves honorably in all things. And I urge you all the more to do this so that, you, so that I may be restored to you the sooner. Well, let's just go with the benediction. Now may the God of peace who brought up from the dead, the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord, equip you in every good thing to do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. And all God's people said, amen. Let's pray. Father, sanctify us entirely through your word so that we as believer priests can recognize the privilege of bringing our sacrifice of praise, our proclamation of your excellent character to a lost world, and sharing with one another. Strengthen us for Christian service and see it as the privilege and the sacrifice that it is through the eyes of faith, saturated by your precious word. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.